Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of 1 John, the fifth chapter. 1 John, the fifth chapter. I'd like to ask you a question. Have you come to the place in your life where you know for sure that you have eternal life? That is to say, if you were to die today and stand before God, do you believe He would let you into heaven? You might say, is that possible to know for sure? Well, I'm going to let God's Word answer that question today. And I think you know what the answer to the second question is. And we're going to see in the book of 1 John and also in the book of 2 Corinthians the insight that God would have us to have regarding this matter of eternal life. And by the way, it's not just information that you will receive today. Information that's correct is greatly important to us when it comes to any matter in life, but none more important than when it comes to this question of your certainty or lack thereof of your salvation. Are you really going to be with the Lord when you die? Are you really in the Lord now in the interim before Jesus comes to receive you to himself if you know him? 1 John 5:13 reads this way, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. Make no mistake about it. God wants you and me to have assurance of our salvation. Tom Brady, 44 years of age, the owner of six Super Bowl championships as a quarterback. He's known by many as the GOAT of NFL quarterbacks. Now that's not a very nice thing to say to call somebody a GOAT if it were not an acronym for the greatest of all time. I remember an interview which he gave after he had won his second Super Bowl. It was given on 60 Minutes. And the interviewer was guiding him in the discussion. And this is what Tom Brady said. He said, there must be more to life than winning Super Bowls. And then the interviewer quickly responded with a question. And he said to Tom Brady, what is it? And just as quickly, Brady responded by saying, I don't know. Then he began to ramble a bit and talk about how maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, but I really don't know. And by the way, he and his wife's net worth together is $650 million. That's probably a conservative number. So money's not the answer. Winning Super Bowls, being in the limelight, being considered not merely the greatest quarterback of all history as far as the National Football League is concerned, arguably the greatest player of all history. But still, 
he had this question in his mind. When I heard him say that, I wished I could have access to him to go and ask him if he'd like to know how he could be sure of what his purpose in life is. We would be wrong if we did not understand the full import of eternal life. Definitely, eternity is a long time. So when I die, I want to be sure I have eternal life. But meanwhile, what we do between the moment of our commitment to Jesus Christ and the time he either comes to receive us through death or Jesus comes again. Meanwhile, what we do in this life is done in the atmosphere of eternal life. Why do I say that? Because Christ is life. He says on two occasions, I am the resurrection and the life. He also says in the same book that he says those things, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus Christ comes to live in a man's or a woman's life when that person totally yields herself or himself to Christ. And when that occurs in that instant, not the moment that you die, in that instant, you have eternal life. It's a shame that so many people who have made that initial commitment to Christ are not aware that they have everything they need for this life in Christ. Since that second championship that Tom Brady won has occurred, and that goes back to the early 2000s, he's won, as I mentioned, four more Super Bowls. He aims to do that one more time this year. It's the only reason for his living. Wouldn't that be a sorry way to live your life? to prove yourself one more time that you are the greatest of all time. He has, since that interview, hired a man by the name of Alex Guerrero. Alex is his life coach. He is Tom Brady's go-to man when it comes to interpreting life, prolonging life, being in physical shape enough to continue to perform in the way in which he performs. But the only person who qualifies for being my life coach or your life coach is the Lord Jesus Christ. Eternal life is ours now if we know him. What an appealing thought. And it's more than a thought. It's the truth. And as Jesus says, the truth will set you free. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Notice, has, not will have, but has eternal life. We hear what Christ has to say. We respond appropriately to what God the Father says about Jesus the Son. And the result is in that instant, we become the recipients of eternal life. Eternal life breaks into your reality the moment you yield yourself to Jesus Christ. So today we want to know how we can be sure that we have eternal life. Do you want to know? Well, I certainly do. And the Bible is the guidebook for understanding that. Now let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 
Paul the Apostle writes, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith, examine yourselves, or do you not know this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test? Healthcare professionals preach self-examination of our own health. Be aware of your body, they say. There are certain things that medical science advocates that we do to check to see if we have indeed good health. And we are to be proactive in that. We're not to wait until we're feeling poorly. We're to do it regularly, just in case there might be something that we can be conscious of that needs addressing by the medical community. In this verse of scripture, it's jam-packed with information and application in our lives. Notice in this text, the first word is test. In the original language, the writer Paul emphasized something more than test being of importance. Typically, when we say a sentence or write a sentence, we put that thing that is most important at the front. And the translation here in English is test, and then the second sentence begins with examine. But in both cases, the actual word that is used by the Apostle Paul under inspiration of the Holy Spirit is surprising yourselves. Yourselves test. Yourselves examine. Don't examine other people's faith in a moment when we are confronted with whether we really do know Christ or not and therefore have eternal life. When we're confronted with a question like that, there is a tendency for us to divert our attention to somebody else. Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians 10, 12, he talks about you are a fool if you compare yourselves with yourselves. What is the plumb line? What is the measuring stick for what it means to know the Lord or anything related to God? It is God himself, Jesus Christ, the God-man. It is the word of God. So we are to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. Before we get into how to do that, let me make note of the fact that we have an adversary. His name is Satan. And he makes it his business, even in this very moment, even as I stand where I am, or I sat down here earlier, I have sensed, and I'm not trying to over-dramatize this, but I have sensed the devil being what he does all the time, the accuser of the brothers. He accuses me to myself, he accuses you to yourself, if you know Christ. He accuses us to one another. And when we get to the place where we want to divert attention away from ourselves and are afraid to take a real look in what the Scripture says about us, we talk about other people. We can always find somebody that we stand in higher standing morally maybe than someone else or in a place of service more than someone else. But look, we need to be people who look at ourselves. And we need to understand that the devil would have us look elsewhere. Now here's another thing. Before I forget it, I want to talk about it. It's a bit out of place in the sequence of thoughts that I plan to share with you going forward. But the devil 
accuses us to ourselves too. We're going to see that. Have you ever had the devil say to you, or you may not have known it was he, but how Satan or his minions say to you, you're just worthless. You're a total failure. You're not going to make it. Has the devil ever accused you to yourself like that? Do you ever have thoughts run through your head that you're just a loser? I have those periodically. And if I really look at myself, I'd have to say, yeah, that's true. All those things would be true. You've got the goods on me, devil. But I forget that I have an advocacy an adver against the adversary, and his name is Jesus Christ. In the book of 1 John chapter 2, we'll go back there and we may not look at that, but I'll just quote what it says. I write these things to you, little children, so that you may not sin. He's talking about what he's written in the book of 1 John, so that you may not sin. But if you sin, if we, he uses himself here too. So John was not one to point the finger. He, he was like the preacher said, when I'm pointing one finger at you, I've got three pointing right back at myself. That was John. He says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You know what happens when the devil accuses you and me? as the children of God. Read about it in the book of Zechariah, the third chapter. Jesus Christ advocates for us. When we're accused, Jesus does what he lives to do. Just as surely as Satan lives to accuse us when we sin, Jesus Christ is there. He lives to intercede for us. That's his M.O. at the moment. He's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he intercedes for us. Aren't you glad we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses and who intercedes for us when we as the children of God and followers of Christ do temporarily sin and fall? Thank God for that. Yourselves test to see if you're in the faith. Yourselves test Examine. And by the way, in both of those commands, they're present tense commands in the original language, which means keep on testing yourself. Keep on examining yourself. We are to make periodic assessments of our spiritual life to make sure we have eternal life. Would you let me use a personal illustration here? as to how I seek to test myself and examine myself regularly. Virtually every day when I get up in the morning and open my Bible to read, and there's a trap that is set for us when we do that. We can fall into a routine, and when we come to the Bible, we just read, read it, I've 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 read it, what more can I receive from it? Well, that's a misunderstanding of the nature of the Bible. The nature of the Bible, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. In something I read last year at this time, and I read it now, it speaks to me in a totally different way. Has the truth changed? No. But I may have changed, and I need to hear from the Lord what He has for me in that moment. And if it's correction, I need to receive the correction. And therefore, when I come to the place, reading my Bible, not to get a sermon, not to get a Bible study, but just to fellowship with the Lord. I take a cue from David, 
a man who was acquainted with personal failure in his life as a sinner. A man who is also described as a man after God's own heart. What a great man David was. Aren't you grateful for David? And what we learn about him and about us from learning about him, uh, of how we are all subject to sin along the way. But he says at the conclusion of Psalm 139, the last two verses, jot this down. And this is where I come before the Lord. I say, search me, O God, not my brother, not my sister, but me, O Lord. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. That's a way to make a periodic, regular examination of your life. Every day, we have this capacity to come before the Lord. And we lay our lives before Him. We say, Lord, show me, show me if there's something that's out of line with you. I want to do that kind of self-examination. And we want to do this to see if we're in the faith. Look at verse 5 again of 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Whenever we see the phrase, the faith, in the New Testament, that's referring not to my personal faith in the Lord, but it's talking about the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. It's the apostles' teaching. It's what we know as the New Testament. This is the Christian faith. Are we in the faith? Are we men and women who are not simply in the faith, but we're of faith. We live a life of faith. In Galatians 2.20, Jesus says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It wasn't Jesus who said that. Paul said that. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Awesome. And the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's move on now and look at how this plays out in our lives. What is God's will for us when it comes to this matter of testing ourselves, examining ourselves to see if we are in the faith, recognizing this about ourselves, that if Christ is in us, we have his faith to draw upon for living the Christian life. Here's what we need to do when we come to that moment of self-examination, self-testing. We need to be open to the Lord. I don't need to labor that point any further. I've already touched on it from Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Ask God to search you and expose you in areas that you need to be exposed so you can get rid of that attitude, that get rid of that action that is out of keeping with Him and His will for your life and my life. So we need to be open. But we also need an objective standard by which to evaluate. We read from Romans chapter 8, and it talks about how if the Spirit bears witness with our spirit, it's a sign we're being led by the Spirit, and the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. For many years, I took that to mean that there is a subjective element 
in this matter of knowing for sure that a person has eternal life. But then as I began to process that statement from Romans chapter 8, where the scripture says, the spirit of the Lord bears witness to my spirit that I am a child of God, I began to think about the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspired people to write the Bible. He is God of very God. He is the author of all scripture. All scripture is God breathed by the Spirit. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the person of God may be fully equipped for every good work. The objective standard of God's word. Let's go back now to 1 John and look at the objective standard that God gave the first readers. Would, would you not like to have been part of the first hearers of this letter or the first readers of this letter? Let me tell you, we are just as privileged today in this moment as they were when they first heard it read. So, we're going to go to chapter two, 3 to begin with. And there are three tests, three areas of self-examination that John gives. And really the whole book is about this. I'm going to give you three examples of these tests. The first test is what I would describe as the moral test or the behavioral test. And we're going to look at one verse, verse 9 of chapter 3. No one who is born of God practices sin. Now let me stop and do a bit of interpretation here. That's shocking. It would seem to indicate that you and I could reach a place of sinless perfection. And there are whole theologies that are built on this verse and others that say, yes, you can reach perfection. And I should say as an aside, but an important aside, that the false teachers that John was writing to combat in this beautiful letter were people who believed just that, that you could reach sinless perfection. And John corrects it in more than one place here. But look at this line, no one who is born of God. Let's stop there just a moment. This is a little technical, but hopefully you'll understand. I know you have the capacity to understand. No one who is born of God. The word translated born of is a word which means once you are born of God, nothing can undo that birth. It's called a perfect tense verb in the language of the New Testament. Once it's done, it will not be undone. So once you are born again by the living and abiding word of God, according to the Bible, once you are born again, you are a person who will never have that undone. And you, if you are born again, will not have, and here again, I'm going to get a little technical, but it's well worth it. Practice is sin. You don't practice sin. If you're born of God, if you're truly a child of God, remember what Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he will not enter the kingdom of God. And that person does not practice sin. Wait a minute. What does that mean? And the verb here is a verb which means does not keep on practicing sin. 
does not have a lifestyle of sin. Now keep your place here and please go to the first chapter of 1 John. Look at verse 8 of chapter 1. If we, and John does not use the word we just to make the reader feel better about himself or herself. He includes him in this statement himself. If we, including me, say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then glance down at verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The Apostle Paul, excuse me, the Apostle John was not confused about this matter of the security of salvation. He knew that from time to time he committed sin. This is the great apostle. Look at verse 9 of this same chapter, chapter 1 of 1 John. If we confess our sins, okay, he includes him in that statement too, indicating that he knew he sinned, but he had been given by instruction from Christ by the Spirit of God. Here's what you do with it. God is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that comforting? That when I sin or you sin, and we will, it's not a self-fulfilling prophecy that occurs. It's our reality. But what do we do with it? We immediately go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm sorry. And we repent of it. And we say, God, help me not to do this anymore. I can remember sins in my past that I had a habit of committing and I would come under conviction. And this goes back into my adolescence, really. And when that would happen, I'd just say, oh Lord, take this away from me. And I'd pray every night before I went to bed, oh Lord, take this away from me. And I knew the Lord. And he would give me temporary relief, but then it came back, I did the same thing. But eventually, because I was persistent in confessing it, repenting of it, even if it was for a short while, he took it away. God's ways are not our ways, and they're mysterious at times, but we know that he will do that. Now let's look back at 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of sin has a lifestyle of sin because his seed, this would be God's seed. The Revised Standard Version translates it in a helpful way because God's nature abides in him. Who comes to indwell us when we receive Christ? He does, doesn't he? By his spirit, he comes to indwell us. And his presence is a hedge against mine and yours falling into a state of sin that is habitual. I will go so far as to say, along with the Apostle Paul, as he spoke to the Philippians, being convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you, who would that be? It would be the Holy Spirit of God. He who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a process which is going to continue. We're going to become more and more like Christ the longer we live, if we understand what it means to know Jesus. And we still will have stuff we're dealing with right up until the time we die, probably. Some of us are obviously closer than others. 
and we still deal with it. Wish we had time for testimony, but we do. So he goes on to say, and he cannot sin. Here again, it's a present tense. He, in verse nine of chapter three, he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God in the same construction as used here, born with an inability to be unborn. When we are born again by the living and abiding word of God, when God gives us his life, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Okay, here's another test. In the same chapter, it's what I would call the love test or the social test. Let's begin with verse 16 of chapter three of 1 John. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. To whom does that refer? Obviously, it would be Jesus. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. He's talking about himself. I get heavy-hearted to think about it, what that must have felt like to Jesus. There would have been a mixture of joy, but a mixture on the human side of dread. This is why when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane shortly after this, he sweat great drops of blood as he cried out to the Father, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. And what he was talking about, the cup was the cup of the wrath of God. He knew God, the Father, was going to pour out all of his wrath upon Jesus. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All my companions have forsaken me, but why you, Lord? It's the only time recorded in the New Testament where Jesus in addressing God addresses him as God and not Father. He was estranged. God has such pure eyes he cannot look on sin. God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf. We know love by this that God laid down his life for us. Isn't that incredible? This is no ordinary person laying down his life for another person. He was human, but he was God. And he loved you that much. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let that sink in for a moment. This is what real love is. He goes on to say in verse 16 of chapter 3 of 1 John, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then, I love this about the Bible. I hope you do that it's not pie in the sky and by and by. It's practical stuff for now. And he leaves us with no doubt as to what it looks like to lay down our lives for our brothers in Christ, to love them. But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer is obviously the love of God doesn't abide in him. And that person is showing a lack of faith in God. Verse 18, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. When our heart condemns us, Sometimes we're doing the right thing. We're, we're living the way God would have us to do. And we're treating each other the way the Lord would have us to treat each other. And our heart, the Bible says in Jeremiah 17, is desperately wicked and deceitful. 
beyond all things imaginable. Even a redeemed heart has the capacity to condemn and to deceive. We need to understand these things when we look at the Word of God in this matter. But the good news is you can feel like you're not a believer in Christ. You may pass the moral test. You may pass the doctrinal test. We're going to get it to a moment. And you come here and you're just wondering, do I really know the Lord? And what God says in this passage, if you see your brother in need and your instant response without even contemplating is you do something if you have the capacity to do something to help that person. That's a confirmation that we know the Lord. Let's go to the third and final test. It's the doctrinal test or the belief test. And we find this in verse 11 of chapter 5 and verse 12 in the same chapter. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. Let's stop there just a moment. Paul echoes this in Romans 6, 23. He says, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's ours if we know Jesus. If we have a proper faith in Him, we have eternal life. And hopefully you've gathered from what I've said so far in looking at the Scripture that it's something that won't be taken away from us if we really know the Lord. That's what the Scripture teaches, not just here and in Romans 6, but here too. The witness is this, that God has given us eternal life, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You cannot earn or deserve. You can't be good enough to get your way into heaven. You have to trust Christ. A lot of people want to get the cart before the horse. They want to do good works in hopes that they can do enough good that they qualify for heaven, hoping that the good things which they do outweigh the bad things which they have done. That's an uphill battle. You'll never win it because the Bible says in the book of James chapter 2, if I break one commandment, listen, one commandment, I'm guilty of having broken all the commandments. Only one. There's only one sin you have to commit that will keep you out of heaven. But nothing can keep you out of heaven if you receive the grace of God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who took all your punishment for your sin upon himself. What happened is what Hudson Taylor, the great China Inland Mission founder, said about Christian life. He said, the Christian life is the exchanged life. My death and life for his perfect life. This is eternal life. It means something very much important to us now in the interim. Do we just sit around and twiddle our thumbs until Jesus comes back? Absolutely not. We wait on him, yes, but we trust in him. And what happens is his seed in us causes us to want to do the things that are characteristic of him. That makes perfectly good sense, doesn't it? If he's in us, is he there to be dormant? He refuses to be dormant. He is life and he will minister to others through you. That's why he saved you in large part to glorify himself through you in the manner in which you treat other people and help people 
like Tom Brady come to know Christ. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. This life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He does not have the Son of God, does not have the life. I would like to focus on two words that don't appear in the NIV. And I memorized these two verses, verses 11 and 12 in the NIV. In the 12th verse in the NIV says, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. To the casual listener, it sounds identical. But the word the appears in each case before the word life. I'm talking about in the original language. And whenever the proper article, the definite article appears before something, it means that something or someone is set apart from all others in that person's category. And this is referring to Jesus. If we have Jesus, we have what? The life. Everything else is a poor imitation of life at best. But when you have Jesus Christ, as Jesus prayed in his prayer, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. Awesome, isn't it? To be in that place. And here's how we have eternal life. We put our trust in Jesus Christ alone. We release control of our lives. Coming to know Jesus requires humility. We have to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Nothing of pride can live in our lives and at the same time have something of heaven live in our lives. We have to say no to ourselves, deny ourselves, and come before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. I'm undeserving. You owe me nothing. It would not Surprise me if you were to say, I don't accept you, but you're a man of your word, Jesus. And you said that if you say it, you will do it. And it's happened to most of us in this room. Can you remember the day when you gave your life to Jesus? Did he do what he said he would do for you? Did he enter your life? Did he give you eternal life? Has he given you purpose beyond yourself in the interim as you anticipate the coming of Christ? Whether to take you home through the means of death or when he comes again, he is a man of his word and he will indeed do it. Now I'm inviting you one more time back to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves? You know, for a long time, I've talked about this before a few times over the course of the last 45 years, but I haven't given proper attention to this part. Do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? What does that mean? This echoes what Jesus says in John 14, 20, at that time, he's talking about when he has died for our sins, he's been buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, he is raised from the dead according to Scripture, and he has ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God. What he's saying here is that at that time when he ascends into heaven, 
And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came upon the church. If you know anything about Old Testament, you know that the Holy Spirit was operating differently than he operates now in the sense that he would come into certain people's lives for a while and then leave them and go to somebody else whom he appointed to be his mouthpiece and his prophet or his leader. But what happened at Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came, all those who were saved that day received the Holy Spirit. 3,120 people in one day. Maybe there were some other believers before that, but all those people received the Holy Spirit and Jesus came to live in them by the Holy Spirit. All at that time, Jesus says, at that time, when I've ascended into heaven, having paid the price for your sin and being raised from the dead to validate me in the eyes of the world as being God become man. In that time, at that time, I will be in you. Now listen carefully. You've been such good listeners. I want you to hear this. So important. We are acting as people who have made that belief commitment to the Lord so often, just like the apostles did in the three years they had along with Christ. Sometimes I find myself envying them, wishing I had that kind of contact. But at that time, Jesus was not in them. Where is Jesus now in you if you've received him? He is in you. We have a leg up on the apostles prior to Pentecost. And that's why they fumbled around so much and they were so selfish in the way they looked at things. But look at them after Christ came and dwelled in them by the Spirit. They were completely different men, weren't they? And they sinned. We know this. Paul sinned. He talks about it in Romans 7. We've already seen today how John talks about it in the book of 1 John. We sin, but we don't find ourselves dominated by sin. The last part of this verse in 2 Corinthians says, unless indeed you fail the test. Do you find yourself failing the test today? God is speaking to you today about getting off the fence, giving your life to Him, trusting in Him alone for eternal life, recognizing that you need a Savior and the only one who fits that bill is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Would you bow your head? If God has spoken to you today about your need for eternal life and you want to be sure that you have eternal life, just pray to the Lord a prayer like this. It's what's in your heart that really matters. And the Lord looks in your heart. He knows your heart. Dear Lord, I need you in my life. I need you for you, Lord. Not for me, for what you can do for me, but for you to come into my life. Please give me forgiveness. Lord, give me the power to honor you. I want to live a life that is a life that is a reflection of you and something that pleases you. Help me, Lord, 
Give me your Holy Spirit to give me that power. And oh Lord, help me to love others the way you love me. Laying down your life for us. Lord, I want to lay down my life for others. Help me, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.